Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to use one of the ones that we've provided in the pew before you. You should uh, find one in front of the pew, in, front, or, uh, in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles there, uh, you'll find our passage on page 967. 967. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want to just say a word about our further initiative. This Sunday actually marks the first Sunday in our further initiative. I've been uh, praying about this and looking forward to this for some time. Uh, Just to give you a quick definition of what our further initiative is, uh, our further initiative is a comprehensive plan for Crawford Avenue to become a radically generous church so we can further our mission together. I'll say that one more time. Our further initiative is a comprehensive plan for Crawford Avenue to become a radically generous church so that we can further our mission together. And each one of you should have received a uh, workbook or a packet when you uh, came in, uh, the further initiative workbook, a workbook for gospel-driven generosity. I'd encourage each one of you to take time to read that, to familiarize yourself with the workbook. Um, As you look at the opening pages there, you'll kind of see an outline of the content that's provided. Uh, There's a great section in there on our history, our mission, and our vision as a church. I think you'll find in particular the history of our church to be uh, very interesting. Uh, Also, the further initiative is explained. There's some frequently asked questions that are addressed. There's a section actually that talks very practically about how we can take steps to invest in the further initiative. And then at the end, there's some uh, study guides, some devotionals, uh, and also a guide to prayer and fasting. So I'd encourage you to read that uh, and to familiarize yourself with it. Now, why are we doing a further initiative? Uh, One of the main reasons we're doing a further initiative is because we have been presented with a unique opportunity as a local church uh, to further the mission of God in this community and in our city. And in order to see that actualized, we realize that one of the significant needs we have as a church right now is to address our facilities. Uh, On the one hand, we are so thankful the Lord has blessed us with tremendous facilities in this great location. And at the same time, we recognize that uh, as a result of just years of uh, the facilities um, not receiving maybe the full attention that the church had hoped to give to them, uh, that there's... Um, updates that need to be done. There's uh, things that need to be addressed. There's renovations that need to be uh, taken care of. So I'll just give you a few examples. We, we actually got an estimate. If we were to renovate or update the entire campus, it would cost between $3.5 and $4 million. Okay? Um, we are not going to do all that right now. All right? So we're going to take it in phases. And in phase one, we're going to try to address some of the most immediate concerns. Okay? And so phase one will be about a million to $1.5 million, we believe. Uh, Some of the concerns that we'll be trying to address are the heating and uh, air condition units in the the areas where we are using uh, those areas. So, for example, here in the sanctuary, the children's area, the educational building, where we'll have staffing, uh, where we'll have our staff and our offices. Just to address the heating and air units, Uh, on the campus, in the areas that we'll be using, we're looking at about $400,000, okay? 
In addition to that, there's areas uh, on the facility where the roofs are leaking. And so to patch those roofs are going to cost over $100,000. The children's space, we're blessed with great children's space. And we can uh, put a a lot of children there in the nursery and also uh, the younger children as well between ages 5 and 10 for our Berea kids. Uh, But that space hasn't been updated in some time. And so to update those spaces and to make them clean and welcoming spaces for young families who are coming to our church, it'll cost over $300,000. And so you see how very quickly we can get to that number of a million to a million five, which would be our first phase. In our further initiative, our goal is to... um, is to receive $1.8 million in two years, okay? $1.8 million in two years. And that includes our budget. So our budget this year is $650,000. Then our budget next year, if it's $650,000, a lot of that money is just contributed to the budget itself. But then beyond that, we would like to be able to have funds to hire some additional staff to devote to additional ministry opportunities in our area, and $350,000 of that would go towards our phase one renovations. Now, we would love to exceed that number of $350,000, okay? Because as I've shared with you, there's much more need than that. But if we're able to do that, if we're able to commit and to receive that money over the next two years, we believe that will give us a great healthy start towards completing phase one. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to approach this further initiative? How are we going to approach this generosity initiative? Well, let me tell you right up front, there's not going to be any silliness. There's not going to be any gimmicks. We're going to present the need, or better yet, I should call it an opportunity. We're going to pray and fast. I'm going to seek to faithfully preach God's Word and explain to us what the Bible has to say about finances and stewardship and generosity. And then we'll ask for a commitment and see what God does. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and fast. We're going to present the need. We're going to preach the scriptures. And then we'll see what God does. All right? With that in mind, this morning we start in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to begin by reading for us verses 1 through 5, which will be our text for this morning. Verse 1 reads, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word, and as we turn to your word, we are reminded of the promise of the psalmist. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would pursue us with your goodness and with your mercy. That you would open our minds and open our hearts for what you have for us in these verses, in this word. And we pray that we would be changed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. 
When beginning a series on generosity, one of the questions that might come to our minds immediately is, do we have any biblical basis for doing so? Do we have any biblical basis for speaking about generosity and finances? And as we think about that question, I think there's kind of two extremes in the church today. On the one hand, you have what is known as the prosperity gospel, okay? Maybe some of y'all are familiar with this. You find these guys on TV. These are the guys that all they do is talk about money, right? Every single time they open their mouths or they preach their a sermon, it's about money. And the idea is, the theology behind what they're teaching is that God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you, in fact, to be outrageously rich. And so if you just send me $100, I guarantee you God will bless you with $1,000, Okay? Now these guys, I don't have to say what they're doing is absolutely deplorable. They're hucksters and con artists. I believe it's these types of folks that Paul has in mind when in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, he writes, they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so that's one extreme. Guys, churches, all they do is talk about money. They're eager to get rich. They want you to get rich. They're motivated by greed. The other extreme, though, is kind of an indifference or a silence when it comes to finances and generosity. And that could be for any number of reasons. Perhaps people would be, or churches or pastors would be silent on these subjects because they don't want to be identified with these guys over here. Or perhaps it's out of fear that they don't want to make folks feel uncomfortable. But when one takes the approach of silence, when one takes the approach of indifference when it relates to finances and stewardship, inevitably, naturally, what results is indulgence, self-indulgence. You see, because our natural propensity is to sin. Our natural propensity is towards sin. And so if we aren't instructed biblically what, what the scriptures have to tell us about finances, about stewardship, about generosity, then we will naturally assume that all that we have is ours, and therefore we will spend it on ourselves without consideration for others. The Bible, though, offers another option between these two extremes. The Bible offers the option of the faithful teaching of scripture that is rooted in the reality of the gospel and results in radical generosity. The Bible offers the option of the faithful teaching of scriptures that's rooted in the reality of the gospel and results in radical generosity. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, and he tells Timothy as a young pastor, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's interesting that as Paul writes young Timothy, this pastor in Ephesus, he specifically charges Timothy to speak to those who are wealthy within the fellowship, within the church body, and to speak to them about matters of finances and wealth and generosity, and to admonish them so that they they would build a culture of generosity within the church which would result in giving and sharing for the blessing of others 
and for the glory of God. By implication, clearly the church today is to speak about these things, to teach on these things, so that the church would not be marked by a selfish indulgence, but rather the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be marked by a radical generosity that brings glory to God and is a testimony to the world. This, by God's grace, is what I'm after in this series I believe we'll see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 that God has clearly intertwined the success of His mission with the generosity of His people. In other words, God has determined that the mission of God would be funded by the people of God. And if we are to go further in our mission as a church, if we're to go further in the mission of God, it will require that we go further in our generosity as well. And so my hope is that through clear biblical teaching and a faithful understanding of the gospel and seeking God in prayer, that we as well as a church body will grow in our generosity. Now as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to provide for you a little bit of the context in which Paul is writing here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and at this time there is a famine in Jerusalem, okay, which is uh, some distance from Corinth. And the famine in the, in the church in Jerusalem is significant in part because this is where the church was established. This is where the church started. It was in Jerusalem that Peter preached at Pentecost and thousands of souls were converted and the church was established. But now the church in Jerusalem has fallen upon hard times. There's a famine in the city. There's a famine in that surrounding area. And so the saints in Jerusalem are suffering. The saints in Jerusalem are going through a difficult time. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, has made it his aim to receive a collection from the Gentile churches, Corinth being one of those churches, and then to take that offering to the church in Jerusalem as an expression of their love for the church in Jerusalem and for the purpose of building greater unity between the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church, and the Gentile churches. And so you'll see Paul speak of this offering any number of times as he's writing to different Gentile churches throughout the New Testament. And it seems here in particular with the church in Corinth that at one point they were eager to give to this contribution. They were eager to support the church in Jerusalem. But at some point their eagerness to give to the contribution had waned. They had become slack in their desire to give. And so Paul is writing them to kind of stoke the fires again, to encourage them to finish what they had started. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul begins, and in, in seeking to admonish them, he begins by providing them with an example, a remarkable example of generosity. And it's the example of the Macedonian churches. We see, first of all, here as he presents the church in Corinth with the example of the Macedonian churches, he speaks of grace and generosity. Grace and generosity. This is our first point. You see it there in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, when Paul refers to the churches of Macedonia in verse 1, he's most likely referring to the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Each one of these churches were located in Macedonia. He may have some other churches in mind that we're not aware of, but those in particular. And Paul is eager for the church in Corinth to know about the grace of God that has been given to these churches. 
Now, initially, we might think when Paul says, I want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia, we might think immediately about their conversion experience, about when God saved them, right? Because we know that salvation is by grace. We know that when Paul speaks of salvation, he often speaks in terms of grace because salvation is all of grace. It's not by what we do but it's by God's grace and mercy extended to us. It's by what Christ has done for us in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead and saving us from sin and death and hell. And so oftentimes when Paul speaks of grace, he's speaking of salvation. He's speaking of one's conversion experience. But here in these verses, by the context, it's obvious that that's not primarily what Paul has in mind. Rather, Paul has in mind here, Paul has in mind here the dynamic work of God in these believers to change them, to transform them, to produce fruits of righteousness. One uh, New Testament commentator, he states it this way, quote, charis, which is the word grace in the New Testament, charis also means God's unearned mercy dynamically working within us, end of quote. You see, in this sense, grace is not just what we receive at salvation in terms of God's mercy and redemption and the forgiveness of sins, but grace is also the active power of God working in believers to change them, to transform them, to produce fruits of righteousness, fruits of grace, like generosity. And in particular, that's what Paul has in mind here in these verses. The grace of God was operative. The grace of God was at work in such a way among the churches in Macedonia that they displayed an unusual generosity. It's obviously, as we walk through the rest of the verses, that this is what Paul has in mind. He refers to it in verse 2 as he speaks of their generosity. He refers to it in verse 3 as he speaks of the fact that they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. And listen, this is why this is important, because in Paul's mind, the Macedonian churches were not primarily an example of the virtue of generosity, although they were, but first and foremost, they were an example of God's undeserved grace and mercy, which produced the fruit of generosity. You see, because generosity is not so much something we do as it is something God does in us and through us. Mark Seifer, the New Testament uh, scholar, he states it this way. I love this. He says, quote, God is present and active in human giving in such a way that human givers are finally mere receivers. God is present and active in human giving in such a way that human givers are finally mere receivers. In other words, a generous heart is a gift from God. A generous heart is a gift of God's grace working in someone's life. And so listen, we want the further initiative. We have a a number of goals in the further initiative and we want to reach those goals, but we also want the further initiative to be, far, be about far more than just reaching financial goals or projections. We want the further initiative to genuinely result in spiritual growth in us individually and as a church body. 
to foster this type of spiritual growth, as I've stated before, we'll preach biblical text and we'll seek the Lord in prayer and we'll even go through some practical steps about how we can invest in the further initiative. But at the end of the day, you know what we need? You know what we need for the further initiative to truly be a success? We need the grace of God. We need the grace of God, undeserved grace, undeserved favor, working in and among our hearts to create within us a desire for generosity, to help us see the beauty and the glory and the everlasting joy of being a generous people. We need the grace of God. The second thing we see here in our passage as Paul speaks of the example of the Macedonian church is their overflowing generosity. So first of all, we see grace and generosity. Secondly, we see their overflowing generosity. This is found in verse 2. We read, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That first word there in verse 2, 4, can also be translated that, that in a severe affliction, so forth. Either way, for or that links what Paul is saying in verse 2 back to verse 1 as a definition or explanation of what the grace of God among the Macedonian churches is. So in other words, in verse 2, he's saying the grace of God has been given to the Macedonian churches for this is what it looked like, or this is what happened. See, if you want to understand the grace of God among the Macedonian churches, let me explain it to you. This is what it is, for this is what it looked like. And Paul says that the grace of God was evident among them by their joy in the midst of testing and affliction, and by their wealth of generosity in the midst of poverty. In other words, Paul is saying what happened among the Macedonian churches, this was not natural. This is not what you would normally assume. Something else was happening here. This was evidence of God's grace. Speaking of the circumstances in which the Macedonian churches found themselves, it seems that their test of affliction and their extreme poverty are actually related to one another. Because of their faith in Christ, the Macedonian churches suffered persecution, and as a result of the persecution, they found themselves suffering poverty. We know that one church in Macedonia, Philippi, Paul wrote them a letter, the letter to the Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says to the church in Philippi, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And it seems that the suffering that they endured for the sake of the gospel, which was persecution and social ostracism, because of that, they also endured some measure of poverty. And in fact, Paul indicates in these verses that the poverty was very real. In fact, it was very deep. That's the word he uses to describe their poverty, their depth of poverty. Some have suggested that this could be uh, translated down to the depths of poverty or rock-bottom poverty. And so notice the gospel math here, right? The gospel math. You think about math, you put two things together and you get get an answer and it's supposed to make sense, it's supposed to be logical, it's supposed to fit together. But notice the gospel math here. Joy in the gospel 
plus persecution and poverty equals wealth of generosity. Those things don't seem to go together. When we think about wealth of generosity, we typically don't think about persecution and poverty. But the joy of the gospel in their lives, in spite the persecution, in spite the poverty they endured, resulted in overflowing generosity. Paul also would have the church in Corinth to know that the Macedonians were not unique in this regard. They weren't the only Christians who had ever experienced this before. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul, speaking of his own ministry, characterizes his own ministry as being poor, yet making many rich. One of the things that's so challenging here in verse 2, and one of the things we see from our text, is that we should not consider wealth to be a precondition for generosity. You know, many of us may feel like we're not where we want to be financially. Join the club, right? We may feel like, you know, I just have so many bills to pay. If I had more money to pay my bills, or I had more money to pay off debt, if I had more money to invest in retirement, if I had more money to do the things that I wanted to do, then I would tithe. Then I would be as generous as the next guy. The assumption is if we just had a little more money, if we just had a little more financial security, if we just had a little more income, then we could be generous. I just want to warn you from this passage that that's an extremely dangerous assumption to make. According to the Gallup poll in America, which is the wealthiest country in the world, those who attend weekly church services only give about 3.4% of their annual income to religious organizations or charities. Non-religious people give about 1.1 to 1.4%. So we're doing a little bit better, but not by much. Speaking of Christians, Barna, which is another research agency or group, reports that, now listen to this, They report that the more money a person makes, the less likely he or she is to tithe. The more money a person makes, the less likely he or she is to tithe. Randy Alcorn, in a book that he wrote, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which is an excellent resource in terms of understanding biblical stewardship and finances, writes, quote, Others believe their poverty exempts them from tithing. I have been with poor Africans who make less than $50 a year to care for their large families, and they wouldn't think of giving less than a tithe, end of quote. And you know, as you think about this, you think about the dynamic that's happening here between the Macedonian churches and the church in Jerusalem that's suffering the poverty. One of the things we may come to the conclusion to, and one of the things we may be able to see here in the text, is that the poverty of the Macedonians, in fact, was not a hindrance to their generosity, but actually served as an advantage because the churches in Macedonia had actually experienced poverty. They knew what it was like. And so therefore, they were all the more eager to give and to sacrifice. I don't know if you've seen these YouTube videos that are making their circulation. I don't know if they're true or not. You know, I don't don't know how much of this is true or not. But it's pretty interesting. They take a camera and they have someone go to a homeless person on the street who's, you know, begging 
for something to eat. And uh, the person comes by and gives them a large pizza. Says, listen, I just wanted to bless you. Here's a large pizza. I hope you enjoy it. And the person walks off. And then they have someone else, a cameraman, who kind of follows behind. And the homeless person doesn't know they're there. But they're just kind of back behind the scenes. And they're watching. And they're following with the camera. And what they found on a number of occasions is that these homeless folks who receive the pizza, they don't hoard the pizza for themselves, but immediately they go to the local park or under the bridge where all their homeless friends are, and they open up the pizza and they start sharing it with everybody. Rich people, we get a free pizza, we're like putting that thing in the fridge, I can eat that for breakfast for a week, right? What's going on there? They know what it is to be hungry. And so they're eager to share. They're eager to be generous. Wealth is not a precondition to generosity. Do not assume that because finances are tight or because there are certain financial goals that you have that you haven't met yet, that you can't be generous. And don't assume that once you hit those financial goals, you will magically become generous. It doesn't work that way. In fact, the churches of Macedonia remind us of another example that Jesus pointed us to in Mark chapter 12, verse 44, when he points out among all the wealthy people, all the religious people who are giving to the temple, he points out one person, the poor widow, right? And he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, and it's almost the same language that Paul uses here to refer to the churches in Macedonia, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Overflowing generosity out of the depths of poverty. Paul says, look at this. Look at the church of Macedonia. Let them serve as an example to you. So grace and generosity, overflowing generosity, third and fourth, and we won't spend as much time on these, third, eager generosity. Look there in verses 3 and 4, and we read these words, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, that word there again in verse 3, we see it again, four can be translated that, I just point that out to, to make... Uh, to help you see that again, Paul here in verses 3 and 4 is again referring back to verse 1 and the grace of God among the churches in Macedonia. Paul is continuing to unpack what it was, what the grace of God among the Macedonians actually was. And he says, another evidence of the grace of God among the Macedonian churches is that they gave according to their means, they gave even beyond their means. And how did they do it? Notice the way in which this happened. They didn't give reluctantly, They didn't give begrudgingly. They didn't give with fear or hesitation. But in verse 4, they gave begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Actually, that word there, favor, which is translated that way in the English Standard Version, which we're using, is actually the word karos. It's the word for grace. So it could be translated, they begged us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. 
You see, the Macedonian churches understood this offering not to be a hindrance, not to be an annoyance, but rather the churches in the the, the Macedonian churches, when they heard of Paul receiving this offering, they saw it for what it was. It was a gift. It was an undeserved, unmerited opportunity that God was giving them to invest in an eternal kingdom. And they received it as such. And they were eager to give. Because they saw it as grace. One commentator has pointed out that here we see the roles of the apostle and the church member actually reversed. Paul did not have to encourage the church in Macedonia to give. Rather, the churches in Macedonia were encouraging Paul that they might be able to give. It's a remarkable example of generosity. You know, as we walk through this series and walk through the further initiative, this is the attitude with which I'm approaching this series. I'm not begrudging to speak on giving or stewardship or generosity. I'm not begrudging the opportunity to encourage you to invest in the further initiative. Because I see this for what I believe it really is an opportunity, a gift of undeserved grace and mercy that God is showing to each one of us to invest in His eternal kingdom. When we give to the further initiative, we're investing in sending out missionaries like Kathy, who was up here just a few minutes ago, sharing about her work among the unreached peoples in East Asia. We're investing in church planners who are planting churches all over the country right now. We're investing in young men and young women who are being raised up from this congregation to go to seminary and to be sent out from this place to be pastors and missionaries and church planners. We're investing in establishing a beachhead in this community, here in this neighborhood, where there's so much brokenness to minister to the people in this community and to the larger CSRA. We are investing in reaching the unreached peoples of the world. This is grace. This is grace to be able to give for such a cause. Fourth, personal generosity. So grace and generosity, overflowing generosity. Um, The last one was uh, eager generosity. And now, fourth and finally, personal generosity. You see it there in verse 5. Look there in verse 5, we read, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And I'll just point out here, notice the personal nature in which they gave. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. And actually, if you go back to verse 4, when Paul says they begged us earnestly for the favor to give or to take part in the relief of the saints, that word that's translated take part is actually the word koinonia, which is the word for Christian fellowship. They begged us earnestly for the favor to koinonia, to take fellowship in the relief of the saints, to take part in, to personally share in the relief of the saints. And so the way Paul frames this here is that what took place among the Macedonian churches was not just kind of a financial transaction, but rather what took place among the Macedonian churches is that they were giving themselves personally to the Lord as they trusted Him, even in the midst of poverty, with 
generous giving. They gave themselves to Paul and to his missionary team as they invested and trusted in his apostleship and the mission that he had been given. And they gave themselves to the Jerusalem church, people that probably they had never met before, as they gave themselves to help them in their time of need. There was something personal about this giving. You know, as we give, we can think in those terms as well, that as we give, it's not just a financial transaction, but rather we have the opportunity first to give ourselves to the Lord in faith, to give ourselves to one another as we join together and give ourselves sacrificially to a common mission, to a common goal, and then finally to give ourselves to people that we don't even know yet, people who will one day find this to be a place where they can grow in their faith in the Lord. Non-Christians who one day will come here and believe and trust in Christ for the first time. Children and young people in this community who will come to this place and be ministered to. Missionaries and church planners and pastors, as I mentioned before, who will be sent out from this place to proclaim the gospel. When Paul reflects back on the offering that the Macedonian churches gave, Paul considers that something happened in that transaction. It wasn't just a financial transaction. Something personal happened. He was drawn closer to them. They were drawn closer to him. The Gentile churches in Macedonia were drawn closer to the church in Jerusalem. And as we have two churches that have merged here, what an opportunity for us to give, to give even sacrificially, and by our sacrificial giving to be drawn closer to one another as we give to one common cause, one common purpose, one common mission, to grow in our affection for one another and to create a greater bond and unity among each other. Paul begins chapter 8 by presenting the church in Corinth with the example of the churches in Macedonia, an example of extravagant and unusual generosity. But you know, this is not the greatest example that the Apostle Paul will appeal to. Next week we'll see it. The greatest example of generosity is not the churches in Macedonia. But the greatest example of generosity is Jesus Christ himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might be rich. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, that's what we remember and that's what we celebrate, that we who are poor sinners, who have nothing, absolutely destitute, Jesus Christ, who is wealthy beyond our wildest dreams, gave up everything, everything, went down to the deepest depths of poverty. Hell itself was stripped of all so that we might receive the riches of salvation through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table now and we take the bread and the cup, Father, help us to be reminded of your extravagant generosity towards us. 
Father, may we rejoice now as we consider the depths of poverty Jesus was willing to go to in order to make us rich in the gospel, rich for all eternity. Father, may we be filled with joy, may we be filled with confidence, may we be filled with hope in the gospel, and Father, as we are, may we be transformed, like the churches in Macedonia, to be a generous people. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.